Here's the real key. I think why I got elected that people went like, okay, we know this Joe guy from DOA. Uh, it doesn't mean we're fans of the music or agree with everything, but we know that him and his band have stood for something and been activists for years and years, right? That was a clip from today's guest, Joe Keithley. Joe is a Burnaby city councilor and founder of legendary punk band DOA. Joe became interested in politics at a young age. Coming up during the Vietnam War, he wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. With half a term at SFU under his belt, he set out to change the world, trailblazing the touring network and DIY ethics still used by bands all over the world. I tell you, this was a super cool interview. I mean, like any punk, but any Canadian punk, especially Western Canadian punk, I grew up um, totally on DOA and Joe's influence was huge in my life at all different stages when I was like really, really uh, like a young punk getting into it, but also it was like, you know, I was in a band that toured a lot and I was someone who's very interested in politics and ideas and how the two being a punk and those ideas in practice um, work together. And as an adult, just seeing someone that has really lived it and put those words into action, really, it's, uh, it's so impressive. It's made a huge difference. And it was just a massive honor uh, talking to Joe. So this is a great episode. I think you'll get a lot out of it. But before we get into it, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I'm Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. everyone welcome back to the show uh, today's guest is someone that I'm really honored to be able to speak to someone who I've looked up to for a lot of my youth but also like my adult life so with that Joe welcome to the show yeah no thanks for having me around uh, it's great to be here um, for people that don't know me uh, my name is Joe Keithley but I'm very known as uh, Joey Shithead uh, leader and founder of DOA punk band um, started just a couple years ago I think 1978 so <laughs> into, into 40, a mere 45 years now. Um, and I'm also uh, a politician that uh, people used to say that, um, uh, you know, there was a big magazine in England 20 years ago said DOA, they're cultural politicians. But now I got elected five years ago. I'm um, a city councilor in uh, Burnaby. Amazing. Uh, and so in our pre-roll, uh, just so everyone knows, one of the things I, I wanted to talk about was I really do want to focus a lot on being involved in politics. And uh, the first question I want to hit on is, so I can't speak so much now because I'm, I'm quite a bit less involved, but in the punk rock that I grew up in, different ideas and very specifically politics were like kind of at the backbone. And some of it could just be like personal politics, what you eat, whether or not you drink, you know, how you treat each other. But a lot of it was also like real deal, actual politics. But as people get older, I found that a lot of ways that people who involved in punk kind of uh, did their politics is they became teachers or social workers or therapists or they were more involved in their activism, what they do for a job. You're one of the few people who actually became an, a real politician. So what inspired you to actually get involved in actual politics? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, growing up in uh, North Burnaby. I was really interested in politics the whole time. Um, 
uh, when I realized that I wasn't going to make the NHL. <laughs> and, and people told me that pretty clearly. I was about 15 or 16, right? Um, uh, I was I got pretty interested in becoming a, a civil rights lawyer. And um, I was inspired by some of the, the, the protests in the, in the United States. Um, so you're talking like uh, during the Vietnam War era, which I saw every day on TV from the time I was like eight years old, right? Some of the most horrific stuff you ever seen. They they censor all that stuff now, right? No, but um, so that kind of got me thinking that I want to be a civil rights lawyer in the, in the mode of people that uh, had dependence on these people at these protests and stuff like that. So I, I went to as a Simon Fraser University, and uh, I went through half a term, and uh, all of a sudden I was in a punk rock band. So <laughs> I never became a lawyer, and uh, you know, but the background to that was really uh, kind of the first protest stuff that I ever saw that got me launched in this direction was uh, the American military were testing um, nuclear weapons in the Aleutian Islands, which is connected to uh, Alaska, obviously, right? And uh, Greenpeace, which had just started at that point, you know, 72, 74, around there. I mean, probably a little earlier, but they got all the students to leave their high school. They came out, come on down and protest this uh, grotesque American nuclear testing uh, and uh, we left Burby North High and the principal actually stood out in the driveway with his arms out like this, trying to stop about 300 <laughs> students to the protest. And we all laughed and thumbed our nose at him. <laughs> and we went by Britannia High and we went by uh, Templeton and, uh, you know, yelled and screamed and the kids came out of there and we surrounded the American uh, consulate downtown on Pender Street and uh, marched around and so we didn't know at the time they're probably the entire staff was up for lunch and didn't hear a goddamn thing, right? But, <laughs> so that that was the start of it. And uh, my brother uh, was a teacher overseas, and he got me quite interested in politics. Like after the uh, the the overthrow in Chile of uh, Allende by the mm -hmm. military, uh, and he, so he was really up on that stuff, and also like a, a union uh, leader and negotiator. So that kind of set the path. So all of that stuff, like DOA, because I, I do want to talk a bit into DOA. So like this this show, we have people from the punk scene listen, but we have people from kind of like all over the place that listen. DOA and politics, I've always just like, they always seem to me to be like one and one. And it's interesting though, because like, do you feel that like punk versus how it was when you were young to how you are today, is punk still like a, a, a useful vehicle for politics? Yeah, it certainly is. And that's the way it started out because we, you know, we looked around and we tried, uh, when I was young, we tried to have a rock and roll band and, uh, you know, we got fired from our first show and uh, said we should start a punk band. You know, we weren't particularly good, I will freely admit. Um, <laughs> But when we heard about the stuff going on in England and New York uh, with the, the punk scene, and a lot of us like, I mean, we really like the Sex Pistols, although Johnny Rotten has turned into like, uh, like, like a right wing lunatic type thing, right? I can't, Super I can't believe it, even it's though he was a singer on one of the greatest yeah. albums of all time. You know, whatever, right? Um, that there's the politics really, uh, really attracted us, and I thought, okay, I always been interested in politics and being in high school and finally this this new type of music because like when i was growing up we were listening to protest music like 
at Jimi Hendrix. Uh, one, two, three, what are we fighting for? I don't know, don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam. I can't remember that guy's name, but anyway, so the protest of era of that music or rock and roll, 68 to 71, was really interesting. Then, then to me, after that, rock became really corporate, right? But then punk rock happened and went like, oh, this is the way rock was meant to be, that you got to stand up to the bullshit and to the man and tell it like it actually is. You know, it's like became, to me, I was also really into folk music too. Um, like, the, you know, from the protest days and stuff like that, uh, late 60s. And to me, this became like a new type of uh, protest music. And so that that made, it, made that work for me. It attracted me to it. And so, but to answer your question, that was a really long answer for a short question. I'm sorry. Um, the, the kids today, you know, it's like punk got pretty corporate uh, once it got popular. You know, they blink 182, whatever. I mean, the fine band and all stuff like that. I'm not knocking them, but it really changed from what it was. So, you know, in the 2000s, when it finally hit its stride, you know, and became a big commercial entity. Uh, a lot of the politics got taken out of it. But the underground scene that you go today that we still play in, there's a lot of people that are involved in really worthwhile things, right? You know, like uh, anti-war stuff, helping people with poverty, helping people with housing. So to me, it's like it's it's still the same. Yeah. So it's an interesting point because it's like there's like punk and there's like scenes within scenes. And like if you think of like the whole Discord thing, how... Ian McKay and all, uh, all the people involved did that revolution summer where they're like, hey, this has gotten too big and we're kind of disassociated from that, but we're still punks. Let's get back to the politics and the ideas. And they did something smaller that kind of took on its life its own. So punk just like, it feels like it's like, going back to that idea of like protest music, it's like, it seems like there's always a core of protest music in it, but it's like constantly reinvent, that core of it is constantly reinventing itself when the other waves get big. Yeah, I mean, and it, it should reinvent itself because the world keeps changing. Like, it's a far, far different place, uh, what the, this world now, than when I was a young man, right? Um, so people have, you know, what, uh, things change. I mean, like, the, 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 I always say there's like four or five things that have stayed the same. And, you know, like, uh, what was DOA fight? We were fighting uh, uh, sexism, fighting racism, uh, fighting uh, weapons proliferation um fighting greed and people will say well what are you fighting now Joe? well we're fighting racism sexism weapons proliferation greed and, and environmental destruction you know that was in there too right so the things haven't really changed just the the, the world has changed i mean i'm not so sure it's for the better what's interesting about what you just said to me is like being to being a punk today is like you know like my next door neighbors in a punk like every, it's a very normal thing but back in, in kind of the era that you're describing, it was like actually dangerous to kind of be a punk, right? Yeah, my uh, buddy, uh, Jerry Hen, who was a bass player in, in the Subhumans, mm -hmm. um, he got his jaw broken by a guy with a motorcycle on it because he had green hair, you know? Yeah. And so it, you had stuff like that, where it's like you say, it's like normalized today. Um, it, it became more commercialized, right? So uh, my daughter, when she was... Uh, 15 came home with uh, a, a sweatshirt from the mall that was pink and said anarchy, right? Uh, and I am like, okay, they've commercialized the anarchist movement, right? And uh, she was, 
Yeah, and I just went, okay, they're selling this in the mall now, right? I kind of thought that would happen quicker, but it didn't happen until you got like bands like uh, Green Day, Rancid, uh, became popular. They were actually selling records. Like the guys I hung around with, the Black Bide guys, you know, the only guys who were making money were the guys in the Kennedys, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, long live Darren, you know? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So like, what was the draw then? Because back then it was like legit dangerous and the shows weren't big because you, you were all at the, kind of the forefront of something. What was the draw? You were these young kids, you weren't great musicians, you know, like you weren't good enough to be in rock bands, but you found this thing. So it was dangerous and it was political. So why were you, why were you all involved? You know, I think we were just, uh, me and the guys I grew up with, like Wimpy Roy and Dimwit from the Subhumans and later in DOA, Jerry had a, four of us all grew up in Burry Mountain, like four blocks apart. And uh, we all were politicized at a young, fairly young age, like in high school, right? And uh, when we heard this, like, well, this is really uh, kick-ass music and, uh, you know, kind of tells it like it is. I, I think I said earlier, right? So um, that drew us in. and. And it's all stuff like, I remember one of the first things I saw on TV when I first started hearing about punk was one of my favorite bands was The Damned. And uh, it was an ABC News special. And it showed the, the drummer, uh, um, Russ Gabies, lighting his drum set on fire with like lighter fluid. And we're going, we're like 17 or 18. We're going, whoa, like, that's crazy, man. And then uh, and then it showed the pan to, it would have one of these acoustical tile ceilings that they were playing. And it showed the fans ripping the ceiling out. And I went like, I want to be in a band when people where people react like that, right? <laughs> and about six months later, we played in a room at SFU, rented a room, put on a show, you know, 50 people showed up, and the people got up and ripped the ceiling out. We're like, hmm, we're just like the damn. <laughs> <laughs> you made it, man. It it was attractive because it was fun and wild. Yeah. And there was and I think that the thing what what got people into is it was just so much fun and there were no rules yeah like rock had become very corporate very sold commodified all that kind of stuff but punk rock was like wow this is wild and out of control and in the same way that uh, you know uh, rap was like a few years later right yeah. it was just when that came up people were going whoa like you know we nobody had ever conceived anything like that right so in vancouver though the the politics were baked in right away and like you said you're kind of radicalized when you're younger you grew up in the backdrop of the vietnam war in vancouver though there was kind of a there was and i think still remains kind of a, a history of direct action of punks actually like doing things more than just protests like actually like all of the things that you know were that people were involved in that ended up with people having jail time like any thoughts on any of that yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, well, one thing to be clear about is that um, one thing that makes Canada great, not perfect, but uh, a really good country, um, is uh, civility. And we see there's a lack of civility in other countries. And uh, so, unfortunately, violence, um, even though it can be aimed at people that are doing horrible things, violence is not the answer. You know, to me, I've always believed that, right? So, um, and you know, we did benefits and helped the uh, uh, Vancouver Five, Squamish Five, that because you know, we, you know, we thought they're not going to get a fair trial, right? So we did benefits and got other bands like DKs, Red Tide from Victoria, and other people, 
even people down in Texas to help raise money for them. And uh, just so we got a fair trial, but I never thought like, <clears throat> Tate, you know, you can change a lot more if you keep it peaceful, but you got, it takes more work because you've got to convince people like, look, what they're doing here is wrong. You know, like the, um, the Lytton system in Toronto, for example, with this Squamish five, you know, making uh, the guidance system for the U.S. cruise missiles. You know, is that a good thing? I, I, I guess somebody's going to make it because there's money in it, right? But, uh, you know, it's it's not a good thing, right? You know, uh, increasing wep increasingly weaponizing our planet, right? It's not a great thing. And we see where we're at now, right? So, I mean, shit, you just use an F-22 to shoot down a balloon. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of different things about that, that you know, but we'll get into that. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, yeah, people, uh, you know, like uh, who's the greatest guy, the greatest force for change? Mahatma Gandhi. That was peaceful. It's like, a, it's an interesting thing for me. So uh, my, both myself and my partner, Monica, like we're both both vegan and like real into into it. And, and also like, I hope, people always feel that like we're cool about it or whatever. And part of me is like, damn, like direct, direct action, like animal right activists, like our, our friend Jake, who, um, uh, you know, the grumpy vegan, shout out to Jake, uh, has this great history that he can speak about where it's like, damn, this direct action is super powerful and can kind of shake up the system. But I also love what you said about, about like, hey, peaceful, but consistent. And the consistency piece is the thing that stands out for me because like people get older, they have jobs, they have families, like being consistent around peaceful action, applying like constant pressure is a really useful tactic. And that's where I kind of want to go into your space is like, you know, you've got direct action, then you have peaceful protests that's got to be consistent, but there's also like getting involved in actual politics, which is what you've done. Yeah, that's, that's taking a step forward uh, further. And boy, it involves a lot of time, time and effort, obviously, too. I got involved really, I mean, I had an interest, you know, from politics from the time I was like 12 years old onwards, right? Let's say for a real history buff type thing. Um, so, the, but how I got involved, there was um, a 20 hectare forest right near where I lived in the center of Burby that uh, was going to be cut down and turned into like... Um, uh, like a high-tech industrial park, right? Uh, you know, um, EA's there, like Electronic Arts, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Kodak was there, fewer companies, right? And uh, so uh, myself and about five neighbors, we organized about the 1,600-person petition. Uh, took it to City Hall. City Hall was jammed. Um, there was one family even got up, they had written a song, like the mother and father and two young kids and played violin and sang. And you could see the mayor getting more and more annoyed. Um, and I even used it to, <laughs> when I, and everybody got a chance to speak. It's like, uh, I finally said to the mayor, you know what? You're in cahoots with these guys. And if you're listening, I don't know cahoots. Just mean, like, <laughs> I think that expression is back from the old West or something like that. Right? <laughs> And, and he just looked at me like, I hate you, right? And later on, uh, about five years ago, fortunately, uh, me and my friend, current mayor, Mike Hurley, uh, helped defeat him. But it took, it took a while, right? Um, anyway, so long story short, what after that, uh, there was a provincial election coming up in 1996. And, right, and City Hall, like, thunder knows that. I was just like, 
piss off, right? And we did the course got cut down anyways, right? So, um, so anyway, so after there's Prince election, '96 after that protest, and uh, somebody pulled me up and says, "Hey, my name's Tom. I'm an organizer for the Green Party. Do you would you like to run in the provincial election?" And I answered like, "You know who you're talking to? You're talking to Joy Shithead. I ain't running for your party." I hung up, right? <laughs> and uh, about two weeks later, I saw some more stuff about the election. I'm like, "Huh? Well, that would be interesting." So I ran. I said, "I phoned him back. I found his number and." Uh, I said, I'll run it. He says, good, good, good. We need candidates. And um, so the sole support I got for them were Green Party was in a, a young version then in Canada, right? You know, um, I got three signs made of cloth, like recycled, you know, recyclable signs. And uh, I print out flyers myself. And then I, my two oldest kids at the time were like seven and eight. I bribed with, uh, don't worry, you help me handle flyers. We'll go to the seven mom and get to get candies and there's your payoff if you come along with me and hand out flyers right? <laughs> and they did and that was the campaign and um i think i finished fourth out of six i got 500 votes nice. which was a long ways away from winning and so that i went through the campaign and went like wow i got my ass kicked but that was really really interesting because you like you got to interact with so many people and get their opinions yeah. and when you knock on somebody's door and tell them that you're running for something you think you're going to tell them what your ideas are? No, they're going to tell you what they think is wrong, which is a good thing. I love that what you just said, like, this isn't a victory story off the bat. Like, that forest got cut down. Your first time at bat, you did lose. So how did you keep going? Yeah, I, well, it kept pointing, and DOA was still going. So that, that was, DOA's always been like a perfect soapbox for me, right? You know, with, uh, you know, as you know, like the, not all songs, but most of the songs have some intent or a political angle or comment on society. Um, and it just, just kept going. And then uh, I, another uh, election came up, provincial election 2001. And then uh, the Green Party did really well. I ended up with like uh, almost 20% of the vote, but I didn't win, right? So, um, and uh, the NDP was uh, decimated. The BC Liberals came in with under uh, Gordon Campbell. Right. And uh, uh, and I ran against a guy who the NDP guy was a friend of mine. I used to play acoustic at his coffee shop and he was mad because he went, Joe, I could have won that seat. But you had to stick your big fat nose in the way and take, you know, split the vote. Right. I'm like, Dave, it's a democracy. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Sorry. You know, I, we're still pals. Right. So um, and then and I got really encouraged by that because I did get the I got second highest vote level for any of the provincial greens besides the leader, right? So I go, okay, people know this. And then that went along for a bit. I ran in four provincial elections. Um, I tried to get a nomination for the NDP uh, in provincial election 2013, and I lost that nomination by about five votes. I don't think they liked liked me because I was a punk, right? Yeah. You know. That, you know, so that was kind of like the funny thing. And then uh, ran again. I, so this time when I got elected in Burnaby as a city councilor in 2018, like now I'm on my second term, I got reelected. Uh, that was my sixth election. So I had, I got my ass kicked through five and yeah. I just got back and, you know, and I had great support uh, from my wife, uh, my kids. And they were like, you know, my, my daughter, my wife ran the campaign office and, that kind of, it was just like a family affair. My, 
youngest son was out like dropping flyers and knocking on doors every day. Right. So it, like it builds up. And I, I think the thing, here's the real key. I think why I got elected that people went like, okay, we know this Joe guy from DOA. Uh, it doesn't mean we're fans of the music or agree with everything, but we know that him and his band have stood for something and been activists for years and years. Right. And uh, so, Oh, so this guy's serious. Okay, maybe I will consider voting for him. And it is a repetitive thing. So that's why I really encourage like anybody who come from, uh, well, it could be anybody, but uh, people coming from different walks of life, we, artists, uh, painters, musicians, uh, a guy from construction, uh, whatever, uh, taxi driver. We need different people in politics with different points of view. And one thing that really helped me, I traveled around the world like for 40 years, like, played 4,000 shows on five continents, I think, 50 different countries. So that gives you an idea of what that, how different the world is. And right here in Burnaby, uh, we it's like the most languages spoken in any town in Canada. There's 120 different languages of the residents here. So when you travel around the world, you get an idea, yeah, oh, everything's not the same as it is back in my little neighborhood I grew up in, in, in Burnaby, right, you know, or in this part of Canada, right, so... Um, I, I think that helped me like get a, a wider perspective. Um, so something you said about going door to door and maybe starting with the idea of like, I'm going to tell people what I'm about and what my ideas are, but actually learning that it's about what their issues are. It, it feels like we're living in just this increasingly polarized world and uh, people just kind of like want to stick with people who share the same ideas. And listen, I get it. Like, I don't want someone bringing in like ideas that I think are objectionable in a lot of ways because like life is complex and messy. But I also feel like, hey, like unless we talk to other people, which is a lot of the intent of this show is getting different perspectives on leadership and hearing different opinions is like, unless we start keep talking or start talking more, like, what are we going to do? Like, live in just these separate little bubbles that are constantly fighting, getting nothing done. So any thoughts on kind of like how polarized society is becoming? Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, like, a, you know, and, uh, it's happened an awful lot uh, in the United States where I'm, you know, just being a musician, I basically probably spent about six years, six, seven years of my life down there. and played, played more shows down there than I have up here. Um, and I got just friends everywhere. And I just... It's really sad to see what they, they become them. I, and I don't want Canada to fall down that same path and becoming that polarized. So I think it's kind of like it, it's good to listen to your neighbors, even if you don't like everything about them, right? Because you know what? When it comes time and you need their help, you're like, oh, yeah, that yeah, that Bob's kind of a jackass. But you know what? He, he did help me a bit here and, uh, you know, I don't really like him, but you know what? I'm going to stick up for him a bit. I, we're talking about that. We had a, a Zoom, a city council Zoom with uh, uh, members of Burnaby Board of Trade this morning. And uh, they said, well, how do we get things done? Well, we, you know, we make uh, the place, uh, if we turn the cities into a 15-minute city where your services are near you. I mean, I know it's a catchphrase used by everybody. but And then you get a better sense of community because you get to know people. You know, the, you know, you walk to the market, there's the old guy. Yeah. Uh, Bill, he comes down and gets his groceries uh, twice a week. And, you know, and we don't see Bill, they're like, huh, I wonder if something happened to him. It doesn't mean you're great friends with him, but you get to know the people in your neighborhood, which is kind of like 
that's a, to me that's a real important thing that you walk around um i mean i did it with my old dog i, I know my neighborhood inside out and just run to neighbors and you know just because i was always out walking the dog right and just like because dog's gotta be walked you got one right there right <laughs> yeah um yeah i i struggle with it a little bit because like as an example i'm pretty like pretty liberal guy. I grew up a lot. I was interviewing a friend of mine named Taylor and I, I just said offhand, it's like, oh, you know, I'm a really liberal, liberal guy. And he let out this big breath and rolled his eyes. He's like, yeah, I know. Cause it's like, you know, I'm always, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm like a guy when I'm on stage with my band, like I, I talk a lot between songs. I, I care about the ideas and like, I, I don't want to hang out I don't want to spend time with people where I feel it's like we're going to have to have to like have these arguments about politics, but I don't want to be cut off from people either. I want to understand what people think. I want them to listen to my point of view so I can inform their process and their thinking and they do that for me. So like when I say it's like, oh, we live in this polarized world, but I'm not like that. I'm like that too. Like I like hanging out with people who are straight edge. I like hanging out with people who are vegans. I like hanging out with punks at the same time. I work at the nature of my job as I work in the corporate world. I work with all sorts of different people. And when I was an addictions counselor, I worked with people who were uh, of all spectrums and all different backgrounds and, and a lot of people who are involved in some pretty like bad stuff. And I just feel like it gets too comfortable in your echo chamber because you don't grow, you don't learn, but you also can't inform the thinking of other people. But at the same time, it totally sucks to have to deal with people's like shitty ideas. The, the minute you stop listening to our ideas, the smaller your world becomes, right? right. Even right. though you don't agree with those ideas. And same here, like, you know, my, my best friends are all musician guys I travel around with, right? Or I see in towns that, you know, used to play in bands with or show up, great to see you again. You know, it's like the type of people that you just got to say about, uh, 30 seconds worth of talking and all of a sudden you're laughing about something that happened in the past, right? They, you got that camaraderie, right? But that go back to the, the door knocking thing, like, you know, like, when you go door knocking when you're a uh, would-be politician or a politician, you got to have some basic points that you want to impress people because some people don't want to talk and they go, huh? Why are you standing here? Why are you knocking my door? Which is like a, a pretty good question. Why are you wasting my time? So be prepared to go through your points, but then people come with all sorts of stuff. And I found that was really kind of amazing that what people told me, I was like, huh. And a lot of times they said to them, you know what? I don't know much about that. I'm going to research that and I'm going to get back to you about that and tell you what I think or if I can help you with this, right? And, uh, and same, same goes with like getting other points of view, right? Uh, there's this insanoid, I can't remember his name, but he sends his right wing uh newsletter uh to all counselors all politicians in canada and you can just turn these things turn these things off and i thought okay it's good to hear uh what some of these insanoids like you know that are on fox news uh or like this guy writing that say regular email into counselors and uh, mlas etc and going like wow is that really what they think right you know but because you got to be prepared for the other argument, right? Um, if you don't, and not say I want to hang out with that, or I, I believe I don't believe in that stuff. Yeah, I don't. Uh, but it go like, huh? Wow. Okay. You know, this is a, a really diverse world, and not always in a great way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. So 
just out of like for interest to the audience, but also out of my own ignorance, like what does a city council person do? Oh, what do we do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we get, we're on committees, like a lot of committees, right? Uh, right now, I think I'm on six or seven. I'm the chair of the environment committee in uh, Burnaby and I'm the vice chair of the planning committee, which is really the nuts and bolts. So like where the city is going, where you build these buildings, how you do that kind of thing. Right. So, um, and so you get a lot of reports from staff, they boil it down because, you know, you know, we're not all experts on housing or experts on this, you know, um, like I'd say, I'm an expert on music in my own way, you know, from a punk rock perspective. Uh, but the staff boils down the ego committees and you read all the stuff so you can make an informed decision to convince the other counselors is a good idea. Then that gets recommended to council itself, the actual council meetings. Um, and then um, that's where it gets voted on, right? Or at least gets that first hearing. And then, and then we get an awful lot of feedback. One thing in Burnaby is really interesting is that uh, we don't have an office at City Hall. We just uh, do everything like through a laptop or iPad type thing. And then we go down to City Hall just for the meeting. So I don't have an assistant. I don't have an office. You know, if I get down there too early, I just kind of hang around and hope there's some chocolates on the front desk or something like that. <laughs> I'm killing time waiting for the meeting to start, right? Yeah. Um, so what, from the, what did you learn from punk that has helped you in this role? And what have you what have you got from punk that has hurt you in this role? Uh, well, what I learned from punk is that you got to keep stick to your ideals. Um, but what I also learned from being in a band and uh, you know running like a small record label, there's a lot of, a lot of negotiation involved, right? So I've negotiated with bands, with rights societies, with stigma music. I've also negotiated with like cops, border guards. Um, you know this part, uh, um, promoters that don't want to pay you, right? And, uh, you know, and uh, I even talked to a warden of a maximum security prison into keeping, uh, they're supposed to be locked down at eight, but it rained, so it got delayed. So, so we're playing with BTO just like years ago. So Joe, I don't think um, you guys will be able to play because lockdown is strictly at eight, and that's the rules of the institution. And so you guys have to miss your set. I was going, and we driven up Saskatchewan for this. And, then, and I said to him in a really nice way, well, well, Warden, I, I know that there's a lot of DOA fans in here and the DOA doesn't play the Things might get pretty unruly. They might riot. <laughs> and the guy sat back and went, hmm. Okay, well, for one evening, I'm going to extend the lockdown to nine. You guys can play, but no trouble. Like he pointed <laughs> Point at me. So you get used to negotiating. So that's kind of what I went through my music career, like uh, being like the band leader, being the manager of the band, basically for the last 20 years. That helped me like, uh, okay, you know, and you got to be respectful of people. Even if you think that person is just like, oh God, how come I'm in the same room with this person? You got to listen to them as a counselor. I mean, the one thing we do at council is really interesting. There's eight of us in a marriage. So there's nine in total. Uh, so when you see the big stuff, like uh, in Ottawa, Victoria, the provincial, they stand up, the, the guys all got, I don't know why they always do this, have to, they do up the one button on their jacket. You know, I, I don't know what's that about. It's okay to have your jacket open. I never understood that. And then they get up and perceive the guy, call the other guy, the biggest liar who's ever walked the face of the earth. The city council, you don't do that. 
because you know these are a small group of people and everybody goes like you got to get their cooperation right and that's it so okay your second part of the question was like from punk what have i learned not to do yeah like what what's hurt you from punk that in in this um i can't think of anything in particular like one of the, the fun things uh like being a musician uh, Mayor Hurley, uh, Mike Hurley, is uh, also a musician. So me and him do like uh, benefit shows. They get two acoustic guitars. Amazing. We did uh, Ethiopian uh, New Year's Eve. Um, we did benefits for uh, Burnaby Neighborhood House. We played about 10, 12 shows, right? It's really fun. That So it's kind of the one thing that being a musician and being a punk, people go like, uh, you know, people sure have their doubts. So like, oh, God, we elected a punk rocker. Like, I think Burnaby must be crazier than I thought, right? <laughs> you know, they turned up, and there was a big article in the in their local paper, and two page spread, and it had a picture of me in a suit, and then a picture of me drinking a beer, wearing a, a cut off jean jacket, you know, ah, you know we're twenty, and uh, the headline was, "What the hell happened to Joey Shithead?" <laughs> but people like people were actually intrigued by it. You know, when you're in a band. People always want to talk, yeah. So you're in a band. And so then the double one, you're in a band, but you're an elected official. Wow, how does that work, right? You know, I go, well, you just act like a nice human being and works fine. Yeah, uh, I, I love that, man. Yeah. You know, going back to one of my earlier questions, like a lot of people I know from punk and hardcore whose politics like I, I'm totally in line with, a lot of them end up as, as teachers, um, social workers, therapists, and like a variety of, of uh, like frontline workers, people are in that space. Like a lot of people work at like, let's say Insight or any of those things, really noble, awesome things. Do you think politics is a good place for punks to, to get involved in, like becoming politicians? It's not for everybody. Um, I mean, I have one of my best friends is uh, most thorough out note anarchist you ever met. Uh, would lived in Brixton uh, in the UK, and we actually nicknamed him Captain Ar Anarchy, right? So, <laughs> and he's like, and, and Super GOA fan too. And he's just Joe, you're running for office. Oh, oh my <laughs> God! I used to be a fan of your band, and oh, like if he eventually came around. We're still friends, right? And, uh, I don't think he still doesn't agree with it, right? But whatever, right? You know, like you know. He, doesn't trust any politicians. I I don't think, including me. You know, so <laughs> whatever, right? You know, um, you know, you gotta. It's not for everybody, but I think you you could do it. Like so, um, got a guy uh, up in uh, Gibson's BC. The mayor Silas White is a musician. We played up there last weekend, and um, he declared the day we played DOA Day in Gibson's British Columbia, right? And came up on stage. And read a proclamation and handed me the proclamation. And I went, that type of stuff is like gold. It was like, I was going, wow. I, I would never imagine anything like that, right? Yeah. You know, and my old buddy Jim Green, uh, rest his soul, who's a councilman in Vancouver and a, a great activist, he got DOA Day in Vancouver like 21, 22 years ago, type thing, and yeah. came up and uh, yeah, it was it was a riot. Me and him just laughed about it and thought this is like really funny, right? So, and, uh, yeah. Well, going back to the early days, um, when you first were building this thing, like building DOA, 
doing those early records, booking your own tours, doing all that. Um, how was it received in Vancouver? Like you were essentially part of the first wave of people that made punk and hardcore, well, punk and then hardcore happen in Western Canada. Like, was it hard? Was it easy? Was it kind of lightning strike, strike, everything's happened? Or was it like slow going? Um, it was funny. Uh, we got a little small influx of money. We were like so broke. So this would have been like, uh, like uh, March, April, 1978. We started like in February, 1978. And we played like five, six shows. But we got the influx, a little influx of money from some unemployment uh, UI benefit checks. And we thought, let's put it into a record. We went and recorded a record like Disco Sucks, um, seven inch EP in like eight hours, like the whole thing. It was it. I got there, I hadn't finished writing the lyrics. I went, hold on a second. I had to write some lyrics on the spot and went, oh yeah, that sounds good. Let's say, yeah, that'll work, right? Type thing. And uh, um, so, but what we did was we were innovative. And I think because I, I went down and uh, found all the magazines in the rec store, I couldn't afford to buy them. I stood in the record store and wrote down like um, addresses uh, and I took a, and it would be a letter. You get a disco sucks single. They'll, Hi, my name's Joe. We have a punk band. We live in Vancouver, Canada, and we'd like to come and play in your town. And I had people today just go like, what? And we mailed the records and waited for a mail to come back. Occasionally somebody would phone, right? But at long distance calls are like expensive in those days. So then, that just being innovative like that, then um, uh, we got this thing said, this was June 78. Um, and I said, wow, your record's number one on the college chart in San Francisco. And we didn't know that means you sold like 20 records or whatever. We thought, wow, we're big. We, <laughs> we, <laughs> you know, when you're that age, you can't go, holy shit. Okay, <laughs> and uh, we went went down there, and um, and this I say you got to be adventurous. I took the train down. Uh, Randy and Chuck took the bus, and Brad, our guitar player at the time, Brad Kent, rest his soul, um, he uh, hitchhiked down the I five to San Francisco with his lost ball in one hand, no case, with his thumb out. Oh my God! Before the show. <laughs> <laughs> And we got there and, uh, you know, and that weekend uh, we made friends with the Avengers, uh, made friends with Jello and uh, Dead Kennedys. And people went like, wow, they got, and was kind of like, they got punk rock in Canada? In Canada, it's just like snow and hockey, right? And, you know, <laughs> people's perception in the States of Canada and uh, these guys are really interesting, right? Or good or whatever they said, right? Or, or crazy. And mm -hmm. they thought I was crazy. Which you know that sort of was right, and uh, um, that just started by being an adventure. So that, that that it took off really quick, just by doing that. I, I love it. All right, I'm going to ask you three questions as we're closing off. They're going to get harder as we go. All right, first one is relatively easy, but maybe not. Did DOA coin the term hardcore? Well, I never really realized what a friend of mine. Uh, um, Cliff Parnell, who used to put, do all the early shows in Reno, Nevada. Uh, and all those guys were down in SF all the time, too, right? Which was our main stomping grounds. Um, uh, he, he said, you know, Joe, I think you invented hardcore because he looked at it, he found a magazine from like the early 1980 
and said, yeah, DOA is one of the few hardcore bands around, you know, but, and then named some other like that, Bad Brains and uh, Dead Kennedys and uh, Black Flag and three or four others. And he claims that's the earliest evidence that he saw of that term in print. So then what morphed from there, uh, we were like in SF uh, six months later, we were down there like three or four or five times a year type thing and down LA the same amount. And uh, there was an article that was, I think the magazine is called Destroy. And said, there's this new scene at, at punk, strain of punk called Hardcore and named DOA, same bands I just named, right? And uh, that, and this was like late 80 and we got back and we were working on Hardcore one but we didn't have a name. So our old manager, Ken, Ken Luster said, how about Hardcore 81? And I went, oh yeah, yeah, that could work. But the alternate was Hardcore Plus. He said, I got two names and we picked Hardcore one. You went, you went with the right one. That was the right choice. Hardcore Plus was like, huh? It's just like, <laughs> get, some, get some steak knives with it, right? So so in that sense, I think you could say, and we, we did the first uh, festival like that. We brought up Black Flag and uh, Remnants of uh, Seven Seconds came up and played uh, at the laundromat on Richards. Um, and so that was kind of the first Hardcore Festival. Then we got the record on tour. Now, so whether I invented it or not, not totally sure. One guy says I did, but what we made, we made it popular. We popularized it by going on this tour. And we were, other people like, you know, the people in DC and other scenes that they have picked up on this, right? And they were going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we're, you know, we're hardcore too, right? Now it's not just the way. So it's kind of, kind of happened at the same time. So. Okay. All right. Second question. Now being a Canadian on the West coast, you have no skin in the game. That's why I'm going to ask you this question. Back in the early heydays, we're talking like kind of like early to mid 80s, which was the best scene on the East Coast? Boston, New York, or DC? Um, well, I got to say uh, the craziest one was Boston. So if that's what you're looking for, uh, like uh, DC was great. One of the first shows we did there was incredible, like... Uh, Ian's brother uh, has got a tape of a cassette that we play this uh, kind of hippie joint called Mountains, Oregon. But next time we played there, we played this radio hall, which is now the the new 930 Club, um, famous place there, obviously. And uh, we were playing, and it was packed, and all these skinheads came down. And then the, the guy ran the hall in the middle of waved over, like, and uh, I go, what is it? Right? He says, don't be alarmed. But somebody just came in with a gun. And I'm going like, okay, you know, Canadians come to a gunfight armed with a hockey stick, right? I go, so what do I do? Stand sideways so I'm a slightly skinnier, don't get hit by the bullet type thing. And New York was, uh, I wouldn't call it that. It was crazy, but not that crazy. But Boston, what really makes me remember that one, uh, we played there and, uh, oh, right, we had this booking guy. Um, the the nephew of more the comedian Marshall Burrell. Okay. He, this I went on later managed Rat and some other bands and stuff like that. He got us a gig in New York, which is really good. This is in L.A. We set this off, and he got us a gig in Boston. When we got to Boston, the guy thought it was Doa, this Irish group or something like that, and found out we we're a punk band. He just locked the door and went, "Fuck you guys, right? You're not playing here, and I'm not paying you." So uh, Springer. 
from um, SFT Control and the other guys were all hanging outside. No, we want to see DOA. So they arranged this gig down the street, something like the underground, Stringer would remember. And uh, as we were playing, all of a sudden they started doing this thing called The Worm. And the entire audience pretty well got on stage and they made like worms along the stage, like between our legs, around the drum set, or on top of the monitors as we were playing this like crazy punk rock, right? And then the next time we next time we got there, we played this little place that they oversold it because we were going, oh yeah, you gotta see DOA, these guys are great. And we played about a song and a half, tables were destroyed, the ceiling was ripped out, ripped out, and uh the Boston police were there with like about 20 of them within five minutes and they were going to arrest us. And our manager, who's pretty smart, went like, no, no, we're just a band. It's the owner there. Let too many people in. And this Boston cop went, oh yeah. Yeah. So we're packed, isn't it? Hey, you. And also it was just like, you know, so to me, we played on Boston common, which was insane. Like where the American revolution started. Yeah. Played outdoors on a circular stage, surrounded by like a thousand kids or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, hey, Boston takes the cake. I got so many friends from all three towns, right? So uh, they're they're all all wonderful to play. All right, well, and shout out to uh, shout out to Jonathan uh, Nastas and also to Mike Gitter, uh, two of my favorite guys from the area. All right, last question, and this is tough. This is a tough one. Outside of DOA. And actually, let's just take BC out of the question. Well, maybe not. No, let's take Vancouver and Burnaby out of the question. From whatever you consider punk or hardcore's heyday, what are the three best Canadian bands outside of DOA? Right, okay. Uh, and take Vancouver out because I was throwing the subhumans in there, right? So. All right, you know what? Put the subhuman. Let's, I, I can't put that restriction on there. Let's say all of Canada outside of DOA, three best. Yeah, okay. So. Uh, um, some humans are great, like great songwriting, uh, really good playing. Um, and they put out a great show. Hey, you know what? They're all friends of mine too. Right. So like, uh, maybe I'm skewed that way, but it's one of my favorites. Um, I, I could probably make category probably four or five. I'd say SF, SNFU's in there. Yeah. Did, you know, like I'm not a super big fan of the records. They make good records, but the show was the show. Right. And Chai was great. And Chai was like a really, really, uh, really funny guy. Right. You know, he sad the way he ended, right? you know, but in his heyday, he was, uh, uh, I got one quick Chai story. This was kind of, it was going on the way down. We were at a festival in Germany and somebody said, Hey, Chai, we're on in 20 minutes. And uh, there's this bottle of whiskey that was backstage for all the bands. And Chai went, Oh, okay. He grabbed it. And I'm not making fun of him or anything like that. Like, um, um, the guy was like a good friend. He grabbed the whiskey ball, like a 26 er I went, I could dig, 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 dig. And uh, there was about three ounces left. He said, Joe, you want some? I go, <laughs> I go, you're going on stage now. He went on stage and went crazy. And uh, the Germans in the audience went nuts. You know, it's a great bill, Osage and Orange, uh, SNFU, like all my old friends, right? Uh, so they'd be in there. Um, Personality Crisis. Yes. I was hoping you were going to say that. Great band. I underestimated. Um, and great, great playing. Uh, John Carr, great drummer. Mitch, you know, the most fearsome voice in rock and roll. Those guys were great. Um, out, out East, I think. Um, wow. 
who you know the band I really like uh and they never made that much headway because they were great guys and they put a great show with the ugly okay really early Toronto band you know and it, it didn't do that much in the retrospective I don't know if they were one of the greats but they're a pretty good band from the Toronto scene and then um god uh you know, the best punk rock was in Western Canada. I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> the Toronto people go like, oh, yeah, I'm going to kill that guy next time he's in T.O., right? I love that, man. I'm so psyched you said personality crisis. They're, they're one of, it, it might be my favorite Canadian record, maybe, if not like right up there. And it's just like, it's just like, not, I don't think it's a forgotten record, but it's a record that's not known enough. That, that Creatures for a While is like a perfect LP. I love that record. One really quick story about those guys that I should get going pretty soon. Um, so those guys, we were good buddies with them. So they show up at my house. It was called the Plaza. We had about eight, nine rooms. It's kind of like after every show, people come back to the Plaza. We called named after the Plaza in New York. So we called it the, the Plaza West or whatever, right? And uh, so Personality Crisis was playing a show in Vancouver and not having our show booked. And they finally, uh, they drank all the beer. They ate all the food. And there's never much of either of them in our fridge. It was like nine roommates. And I go, I, I look at them. They'll be sitting there like, uh, uh, like smoking a cigarette. Yeah, he's got another show. Oh, uh, yeah. I said, here's a number of guys in Seattle. Call them. Sneak across the border. Go play. Like, but get the fuck out of my house, right? So, like, <laughs> I, I love those guys. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, uh, wonderful stuff, right? So. Awesome. Oh, listen, uh, Joe, this was so great. Uh, any, as we're closing off, anything you want to shout out, where can people find you? Where can they learn about DOA or any of your other things you want to promote? So we've got a busy, I'll give you a two minute version, a busy year coming up with DOA. Um, uh, Canadian stuff coming up. Uh, um, we're playing with Fear in Vancouver on the 21st uh, at the Vogue. So that'd be interesting. There will be, there will be a mosh pit, I understand. You know, <laughs> um, and we're going to Europe in the summertime for three weeks, uh, play Rebellion, a bunch of other festivals. Um, we'll do a whole bunch of state uh, stateside stuff in the fall, so uh, like um, Texas down to Florida, East Coast. Um, I've got a solo record coming out in uh, April 1st, I think. It's called Stand, singular, like you're standing up, Stand. Mm -hmm. So this is all on Sudden Death Records. It's not released yet. Um, so people can go to suddendeath.com. They can see... What we have out. Oh, we're doing a really cool reissue of uh, War in 45, which cool. is like, yeah, so it's the 40th anniversary. I know it's like basically the 41st. I'm a little bit slow on this stuff, right? But, um, and we've got the original eight tracks and then seven more demo tracks recorded at the same time with Chuck Biscuits drumming and then the War in 45 with Dimit, Dimwit drumming, who I considered two of the top five drummers of all time. Both of them are like, pretty amazing right on the same record and uh, yeah so um so lots of stuff happening at sudden death right so uh yeah um and i got uh, uh meetings galore so i suppose on the road i'll do them by zoom oh yeah man awesome well listen this was a a real honor and privilege to speak to you and also just so cool to hear your take on it um thank you so much any last words as we're closing off no, uh, just, uh, hey, everybody, uh, keep your chin up. We're in a troubled world, uh, but uh, never give up hope. There's always hope. 
Hell yeah, thank you so much. All right, everyone, I will see you in the outro, and Mike, drop the beat. Joe, thank you so much. You know, most of our interviews are two hours long, or around that amount of time. Uh, Joe only had an hour and you know he's so busy, so Joe, thank you so much for that time. It's cool though, because when you're with someone who can really chop it up and understands how to communicate, you can get a lot done in an hour. And this was a great example of that. If there's anything I'd encourage people to take away uh, from this is that anything that happens in the world, anything good that happens in the world is because people decided to make it happen one person or two people or 10 people or 100 people got together and made it happen. And they didn't just make it happen through force of will. They talked, they thought, they planned, they succeeded, they failed, they got back up again. And getting into that space requires the ability or the, the belief that you could do something and then the ability to execute on it and go out and do it. So uh, I encourage everyone here, you know, A, Check out DOA if you haven't yet. And if you do already love DOA, then go listen to them today because they're great. But also, if you believe in something, you want to see a change, then be the first person to raise your voice and get to action. All right, everyone, that's it for now. I'm Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. One step. One.